This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. The national defense strategy really focuses us on near-peer competitors. The U.S. government, in fact, increased its contribution to WFP in order to assist. Everything that we do in space, a lot of it can be applied to our life on Earth. We feature women who are breaking barriers and shaping the future of foreign policy, national security, international business, and development. Dame Barbara Woodward joined the United Kingdom's Foreign and Commonwealth Office in 1994. Since then, she has served in several different roles in China, Russia, the European Union, and the United Nations. In February 2015, she became the British Ambassador to China and is the first woman to hold that post. Woodward is one of the most senior ambassadors in the UK with nearly 30 years of experience. I sat down with Ambassador Woodward to discuss the UK's approach to China, her experience in the UK civil service, and the role of women in foreign policy and national security. Ambassador Barbara Woodward, welcome to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. Thank you very much, Beverly. I'm delighted to be here. Let's start with your background and talk a little bit about how you got to be where you are today. Um, You studied at St. Andrews and then you moved to China to teach. What was that like? Was that initial work there what generated your interest in China? So yes, I started off interested in China from my graduate history program. And when I looked at what my options were as a history graduate. China was then, this was the late 1980s, already an exciting story. And I thought it would be interesting to learn Chinese. And spending two years in China, learning Chinese, teaching some English was a great way forward. Yeah. And then from there, I went on to Yale. So I remain very grateful uh, (laughs) to Yale for the scholarship and for my international relations program. Well, you've spent a lot of time in China as a diplomat, first as a political counselor, and then minister and deputy head of mission. And now you are the ambassador. So talk about the changes you've seen in China during, you know, your initial time there from the time you were a teacher there and then going back as a diplomat until now. How how has it changed? Oh, China's changed uh, hugely since I first went there in 1986. Uh, it's hard to describe now when you look at the skyscrapers of Shanghai and the roads and the smart stores in Beijing, just how underdeveloped China's economy was. So I was teaching in Wuhan, which is a city in central China. It's sort of the industrial heartland of China. Um, Our classrooms were pretty basic, um, sort of wooden floors, a few steps missing, old wooden desks, uh, a lot of chalk and blackboards. Uh, We had no heating in the winter, so we taught in duvet jackets and gloves and hats. And we got the students moving up and down and jumping around every five minutes or so because it was so cold. And in summer, it was pretty hot and uh, mosquito ridden. Uh, We had campaigns against anti-bourgeois liberalisation. The Chinese had to catch seven rats and take their tails in to be counted as part of an anti-rat campaign. So it was all, the students had worked really hard to get to university. um, And it was a very, it was a sense of great optimism and excitement and interest in foreigners. Um, Fast forward to now, China is, of course, far more prosperous. People do 
apart from uh, there's about 20 million people still left living in poverty but broadly they have enough to eat they have education they have health care um, they have access to traveling overseas they can choose what jobs they get to so when my students graduated uh, it was a really sad occasion because they were pretty much put in buses and sent back to their towns and villages as high school teachers having had four years in the big city mm-hmm. so the changes have been absolutely enormous and very exciting and I think for the most part positive. How has the relationship between the UK and China evolved in that same time period? Uh, So I was talking to one of my predecessors as ambassador who'd been in China slightly before I first came there. And at that time, we had seven uh, diplomats in the embassy uh, in Beijing. Uh, Now I have 1,500 staff uh, spread across China. I have 18 uh, government departments represented uh, right through from development, the treasury, healthcare, energy, sustainable development. So the relationship has really broadened and deepened in that time. Uh, A pivot point for that, I think, was President Xi Jinping's state visit to the UK in 2015, when we developed a commitment to a much broader and deeper uh, relationship with China. Part of that is capturing the economic opportunity, but also uh, addressing uh, some of the security challenges uh, that China's rise and rejuvenation presents. And some of those challenges we're going to talk about now. We can't uh, let you be here without asking you about the, well, here in the United States, the big news is the U.S.-China tariff spat and some worry that it's going to turn into a full-fledged trade war. Uh, So this is causing obviously some strains on the U.S.-China relationship. Are there similar strains between the U.K. and China at all around trade? Yeah, I think we've seen uh, when China joined the WTO in 2001, made a certain number of commitments about opening the market. Some of those China has met, uh, but some of them we think that China's progress has not been so rapid. And actually, in many respects, the concerns that are behind the the US-China trade discussions now are exactly the same concerns that British businesses reflect to me all the time. So they are concerned about their intellectual property. They're concerned about the amount of red tape and how, I don't know whether you can have opaque red tape, but how untransparent the system can be. They're concerned about unequal opportunity uh, for international businesses in China compared to Chinese businesses. All those things are absolutely at the heart of everyone's concerns about doing business uh, with China. So yes, that's a concern for us as well as for the US. And relative to the trade spat that we're in with China, by where I mean the US, how concerned are you about that spreading? Mm. Uh, I read uh, recently that uh, I guess it was the EU Chamber of Commerce said Mm. as many as a third of businesses from the EU doing business in China could potentially be hurt in this trade war or, well, trade spat, I guess you call it at this moment, between the US and China. Mm. We are concerned by several things. Um, Of course, we would like the trade discussions to come out with an agreement. That would be great for all of us, uh, resolving some of the concerns that President Trump has around the deficit, but really importantly, uh, resolving some of the structural challenges that are being addressed in the trade talks. So that would be important. What we don't want, however, is to be collateral damage in those talks. So for there to be a deal on uh, procurement or purchasing US goods, which closes the UK or other countries uh, out of the Chinese market, or a deal which in some way undermines the WTO trading system, which I think is really important for all of us in establishing 
the 21st century economy and the free trade principles that it is based on and having uh, a single point of trade dispute resolution. So we very much hope that uh, any uh, solution to the US-China trade talks will be within the WTO framework. Let's talk about uh, some of the security concerns. Mm. Uh, I read where Prime Minister May earlier Mm. this year uh, banned Huawei, the telecom giant, from having any or providing any core parts of the 5G network because of security concerns. Mm. And Google has just... uh, restricted Huawei's access to, I believe, Android apps on an operating system. Basically, the administration here has blacklisted Huawei Mm. and is requiring U.S. companies to now get a U.S. government license uh, to do business uh, with Huawei. This is a challenge that doesn't seem to have a very easy answer. Mm. What's your take on it, particularly since you're in Beijing and I'm sure you hear from the Chinese government about these kinds of actions. Mm. So I think the first thing to say is just to be clear about uh, two things which are really important. The first thing is that the UK has not yet taken a decision on our 5G network. So people have followed here very closely the uh, leak of a confidential cabinet discussion in the UK about three weeks ago, uh, discussing our 5G plans. Uh, The Secretary of State for the Defence was sacked as a result of that leak. Uh, so, But the key point is we have not yet taken a decision I on see. that. Uh, we are, 5G is a really important technology for all of us. The connectivity that it could bring could bring enormous benefit not just to our public services, but also to our citizens. Um, and also the way in which we can collect data could also have great benefit. So we're doing a technical Uh, review in the UK, uh, looking at the technical aspects, uh, the security aspects, the safety aspects of 5G, and therefore what standards we will be setting for any 5G contracts that we let. And actually, other European partners are doing or have done very similar things. But the key point is we haven't taken a decision yet. But the one thing that we have been absolutely clear about, uh, including with our our close partners such as the US, is that any decision that we take on 5G in the UK will not put at risk our own national security or the national security or the security of our allies and partners. And of course, that applies to the US. And our Foreign Secretary has been completely clear that the security uh, of our country and our allies is not to be put at risk by the Huawei decision or the 5G decision when it happens. What do your Chinese counterparts say when these kinds of security questions or issues arise? What's their response? Yeah. Um, So we've been building out our relationship uh, with China uh, from uh, starting off with a strong trade and investment focus into uh, questions of security, including uh, Huawei. But that also includes a couple of other important things. So, for example, in 2015, we signed an MOU on on cybersecurity with China, in which we agreed that there would be no uh, cyber attacks for commercial uh, gain. Now, we've been quite disappointed in some respects. We have evidence which we published last year with the US of the APT-10 attacks, which cost British companies billions of pounds worth of damage, US companies the same. And we felt that we had no alternative but to publish that information in order to make clear that 
we needed these concerns addressed. So security is a very important part uh, of the relationship and something that we're really committed to protecting in that. Do you foresee this being something that continues to be an issue in terms of the security and how it impacts the trade relationship between not only the the UK and China, but the rest of the West and China mm-hmm. with the concerns about intellectual property? So I think a lot will depend on how the US-China trade talks come out and how much of that is resolved. I suspect that there will be uh, trade issues that come up. There are areas, for example, of trade where we don't currently have regulation. There will be all of the fourth generation industrial revolution uh, technology that we need to think about. And a really important thing I think we need to think about is making sure that we don't get ourselves into uh, the Huawei position again. So we don't get ourselves into a position in these emerging uh, fourth generation industrial revolution technologies where we have a single monopoly supplier, irrespective of where that Uh, supplier comes from, because the most important thing is that we have competition uh, in these technologies. But yes, I think as we um, compete for markets, as markets change, uh, there will be trade disputes. But what we really hope is that uh, the WTO will remain a strong dispute resolution uh, mechanism. And that's why it's really important, I think, to Uh, look forward to reforming the WTO so that the WTO can cover services, e-commerce, which it was never set up to do in the first place. Let's talk about some of the other diplomatic challenges of the 21st century. (laughs) Not that the one we just discussed isn't a huge one, but you recently gave a speech on on other diplomatic challenges. What are some of them and how can they be addressed? Will they be as difficult to deal with as the trade challenge? Yes, they will be difficult to deal with. So the challenges that I see are broadly things like transnational challenges uh, that don't respect boundaries. So questions such as climate change, development, uh, disease, all of these things that go across uh, national boundaries that we need multinational uh, solutions to resolve. Uh, And that, of course, includes trafficking, immigration, terrorism, all those sort of things. Uh, Then I think there's uh, another group of challenges which is related to that, which is there are now far more, a far wider range of actors in the international space than uh, we had when we set up the Bretton Woods and the UN systems. That was set up on the basis of the nation state. I think that that the nation state should remain the basis. But we have to acknowledge now that we have uh, individuals, whether they are uh, influencers in society, uh, businessmen, uh, businesses, businesswomen, uh, chief executives, all of those sort of actors uh, in the international space which need to be taken account of. And alongside those, you have uh, non-state actors, terrorists and things like that, that we need to think of how we accommodate or how we deal with them in the international system. And the third trend that I identify is that I think individuals, citizens' expectations of their governments and the international systems has changed radically. Um, we've seen that with populist movements, with the Gilets Jaunes in France, for example. Um, some people say that the Brexit vote was part of that expectation. Citizens are expecting quicker results from their government. They're expecting uh, reactions. They're expecting more of a say in the international system and what is shaping their lives now. What do we do about it? Well, there's a whole raft of things that we need to do, and some of them are domestic. But when I look at the multilateral system, um, 
I think it is a slightly a Dr. Zeus-like approach. It's an ABC type of approach. So I think there are some parts of the multilateral system where we simply need to uh, adapt the organisations that we have. Uh, so, for example, when I look at the IMF, the World Bank, those organisations are based on membership and we just need to adapt, for example, the voting weights in the IMF to accommodate uh, the changing, changing size of an economy. And we've done that with respect to China's rise. Other organisations, uh, parts of the system, uh, I'd go for B of build, and we need to look at what we have, but we need to build out uh, from the existing organisation that we have. So migration is the most obvious example. The problems of migration in the 1950s when the IMO was set up were tiny compared to uh, the pressure that is now on the US southern border, 1.3 million Afghan refugees, 700,000 Rohingyas uh, currently in Bangladesh, all sorts of migration pressures. And we need to think about how we can build uh, the multilateral structures to deal with those. Won't that be a bit controversial? How difficult can you imagine it will be to get um, a body like the United Nations to agree to build existing organizations out to deal with the problems that you rightly describe as being things that everyone has to come to the table to work on. Yeah. So I think I don't pretend any of this will be easy. We've got to build out uh, the WTO, for example, to deal with e-commerce, to deal with services that were never put in. But my point is that we have the fundamental structure here. And rather than starting from scratch, I think we are better placed if we uh, try and come together and build on the structures we have rather than uh, creating where we have nothing. Because that's the the C of my ABC, which is there are some areas where we have absolutely no uh, architecture. Uh, I would say the Arctic, for example, space often thought of as the final frontier, but no longer the final frontier, where we do need to come together multinationally to agree some sort of structures and regulation, because otherwise there's a risk that individual countries will regulate in their own way. Those will be competing and will end up uh, with something that doesn't work at all. And underneath that, I would add a D for defend, because I think we need to defend the values and principles uh, on which these structures are built. So the idea that might is not right, uh, the rights of the individual citizen, uh, the uh, rights of nation states, uh, which are captured in many of the UN conventions. And it's really important to defend those. Rule of law, for example. Is it going to take a paradigm shift on the part of the West to accept some of these changes that you've outlined that need to happen? I think it is, but I think uh, that paradigm shift has perhaps already begun. Um, so you might say that uh, after the collapse of the Berlin Wall in 1989, uh, we had a period of the United States as the sole superpower, a period when in many ways the multinational system worked well, I think. Of course, there was still conflict, disease, poverty, migration, um, terrorism, appalling terrorist attacks. The United States knows that uh, more than anybody. Uh, but at the same time, by many metrics, uh, individual lifespans increased, more children got education, more children got vaccination. Uh, so things were improving. But I think the paradigm shift now has begun to take place. We recognise this is an uh, the Asia-Pacific century. Uh, so 30% of global trade, global GDP comes from the Asia-Pacific. The US, of course, bounds the Asia-Pacific, uh, but the UK doesn't. But we need to think uh, in slightly different terms around the Asia-Pacific or the free and open Indo-Pacific area. So we need to look at Asia much more, I think.
Before we wrap up here, I want to shift gears a bit and talk to you about being uh, a woman diplomat mm. and uh, someone who served uh, uh, for quite uh, a number of years and and the role of women in foreign policy and national security. I'm sure it's different now than when you first began, mm. and you're currently one of uh, about 50 women in the UK who are currently serving globally mm. as ambassadors. So um, how did you navigate your career? Were you the first or one of the first to do what you're doing? Um, so I'm the first in that I'm the first female British ambassador to China, mm-hmm. but I'm by no means the first female British ambassador. Um, the first female British ambassador we appointed back in the 1970s, I think. And that was remarkable in itself because it wasn't until the mid-1970s that we lifted the regulation in the Foreign Office that uh, women who uh, women had to resign on marriage. So whatever track you were on, however talented you were, uh, you faced uh, the ultimate choice between marriage and uh, your career. We don't have that anymore, of course. Mm-hmm. So that's, I think, an important improvement. So I feel that very, in very many terms, uh, the way has been paved for me by some very distinguished predecessors, uh, but also um, a lot of colleagues who have supported me along the way. And what advice would you give to young professional women who may be listening to this podcast about charting a path in foreign policy and security? Uh, I think I would say it is really important to be doing something that you truly believe in. And when I look back at my career, what the the inspiration has been uh, the fundamental freedoms that the UN has guaranteed. Um, and I just wanted to see those rolled out around the world to as many people as possible. So when I served in Russia, I served just after the Berlin Wall had come down and we worked on freedom. Uh, when I worked on EU enlargement, it was the same thing. It was bringing the opportunities that having uh, an open society brings to as many people as possible. And being back in China, working on China as reform and opening up has progressed. So I think being passionate about what you do uh, matters. Uh, I think finding uh, role models and mentors uh, really matters. And I think having a strong supporting network around you, um, I have, I'm very lucky, I have some very good friends both back in the UK, but also in China, where we can talk about what it means to be a woman taking some of these sort of decisions. Ambassador Barbara Woodward, thank you so much for being with us on the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. Beverly, thank you very much indeed. Subscribe to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to good content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, and I'm at Beverly Kirk. Thanks for listening. See you next time.